Hey, everybody, you're listening to a bonus episode of the NASA in Silicon Valley podcast. A little while back, we got to sit down with Jennifer Dungan. She's a scientist here at NASA Ames who helps researchers study the Earth from above using satellites. Jennifer is the project manager for the NASA Earth Exchange, a big data initiative that uses NASA's supercomputers here at Ames. The NASA Earth Exchange makes it possible for Earth scientists to work with very large data sets covering very large areas of the globe. One part of NASA's mission is to study the Earth as a whole system, to look at many different aspects and how they work together. And people like Jennifer help make that possible. But I'll let her tell you all about it. Let's get into this episode with Jennifer Dungan. Jennifer, it's good to see you in here. Hi, Abby. Good to see you again. Great. So we like to start off learning about our guests. So where do you come from? How did you get to NASA? I came to NASA, believe it or not, 30 years ago. Oh, really? I suppose in my teens, I I set this idea that, oh, I would love to work with, um, you know, I I loved Star Trek and Mm -hmm. those sorts of things. And I decided on a science career when I got to college. And after my master's degree, I had the opportunity to come out here as a research assistant. Okay. So first uh, job out of grad first, school, basically? First job out of grad school. Okay. Before grad school, I was at the Ecosystem Center in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. So oh. I started working in the research community then. And at that time, I actually worked on some of the earliest global carbon cycle models. Back then, they were written in Fortran. Some of them still are. Um, <laughs> Early, early models. Very (laughs) early models, yes. And uh, so then I had the opportunity. While I was there, I was looking for where I would go to graduate school, and I heard a presentation by someone who was doing work on Landsat imagery of Amazon rainforest, and he showed Hmm. the... um, the patterns of deforestation, and I was very concerned about tropical uh, deforestation. And I thought, wow, this is the way to really see the big picture. How do you yeah. how do you look over very large areas to see what what's happening yeah, on the Earth's surface? This is the Landsat satellite, right? Yeah, the, the Landsat satellite series started back in 1972. Wow! So this was in the Way 80s when, that I was yeah. learning about this, and I was very impressed. And I said, that's what I want to go to grad school in. And so cool. I got a master's degree in remote sensing. And there are very few um, jobs in the world that you can spend all your time doing remote sensing. And NASA Ames, or NASA is one of those places. Oh, so, yeah, yeah, that's so really. I is that really what the degree was called? Was it a It was called program? environmental monitoring. OK, all right. And remote yeah. sensing means that, right? Using yeah. satellites to remotely view and study the Earth? Uh-huh. OK, yeah, yeah great. And so you knew that NASA was a place you could probably use that degree, huh? Yeah. Yeah, and so I had two possible um, research jobs, um, and one was at Ames. So I came out here, moved from New York, and Mm -hmm. became a Californian. Did you continue working on the same kind of thing, or did your career really evolve from there? My career evolved very much so because when I first got here, there was a professor on sabbatical who was interested in geostatistics, 
um, which is a way of applying statistics to spatial data, to geographical data, mm. to map data. Oh, okay. And he had come from England, and he was researching this, and we, we both learned at the same time that the, one of the world's foremost authorities on that topic was at Stanford University. Mm-hmm. So, right, yeah. um, so I began learning about that, and then he offered me the opportunity to do a Ph.D. degree at the University of Southampton. So, uh-huh. um, in England? Where, yes, in England. Mm-hmm. So that's where I got my PhD eventually. Oh, wow. Uh, so the research that I've worked on through my career here at Ames gradually evolved over that period of time. Yeah, I guess so. And you've been bouncing from one coast to the other and then to the UK and back again. <laughs> yeah, so that, that gives me a, a regional view. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not quite a global view. But, but pretty broad, not bad. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so after your PhD, I guess you ended up back at Ames? Yeah, I I actually was here doing the research at Ames while I was working on my uh, Mm, dissertation and reporting back to my advisor and getting to to know all of his uh, other graduate students who I remain friends with today. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's another uh, neat thing about studying science; it's quite international. Yeah. Yeah, shout out to my UK colleagues, um, <laughs> and uh, a couple of them have come and visited Ames to do research as well. So that's cool. a nice connection. Yeah, absolutely. So then, tell us what your work turned into from there. Maybe more recently, closer to today, what what have you been working on? Um, well, I guess most generally, my work has to do with what remotely sensed data can tell you about vegetation. Mm. So it's it's like the I, rainforests, right? Rainforests, um, crops, uh, the forests of the temperate zone, um, okay. yeah. and plants. You know, plants. When you, when mm-hmm. you look at plants from space, they they just look like one model calls it the green slime <laughs> <laughs> covering the surface of the earth. Yeah. So <laughs> so from from space, it just it looks green. Yeah. And you can't necessarily tell exactly what kind of vegetation it is. You have to have good spatial resolution, and we have some sensors that have good spatial resolution to be able to tell what kind of plants are growing. Okay. But even even without knowing exactly what kind of plants are growing, you can infer certain things about what plants are doing, uh, um, yes. how, they're, how they're greening up in the spring and, and okay. um, senescing in the, in the fall, and how green they are might tell you something about the amount of vegetation, the number of leaves. Mm-hmm. Um, how thick it is, how thick they're growing. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is it only visual like that, the data that you're collecting? Or can you sense other things like the oxygen that the plants might be producing? Or? Well, all of that, like oxygen production and carbon dioxide uptake and things like that, are inferred from models. Hmm, okay. So we use, um, we use the values that we get in remotely sensed data at every pixel or picture element um, we can either use that information to label the pixel and say this pixel is urban. It represents urban land, or it represents mm. a crop, or it represents desert or okay, ocean, right. or Classifying all sorts it. of different classification schemes. Or it can be used to quantify something like the amount of vegetation. Um, one index we use is called leaf area index, which is the number of leaves per unit mm. on the ground. And, and other things like that. And then we use models to make inferences about um, what that means for carbon dioxide uptake or for evapotranspiration, which is the amount of water plants release. Uh, yeah, yeah. So we talk a lot about models, and I just want to make sure I understand how they work. So is it like you've 
established this is a, a dense patch of vegetation. And so knowing how dense it looks, you can calculate probably how much mm-hmm. oxygen's producing. Mm-hmm. So you plug that number into kind of a formula. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's what I was imagining. Mm-hmm. <laughs> good. All right. That's uh-huh. a good way a good way to summarize it. All right. So you've worked with lots of models understanding vegetation on Earth. Did, did you focus on a specific area or type of ecosystem type of vegetation? I've worked on different ecosystems at different times, mainly forest ecosystems. Mm-hmm. Um, but these days I'm working a lot with others on what their models are. Mm-hmm. And um, okay. so there are a lot of different types of models that our current project, which is the NASA Earth Exchange, uh, works with. So, yeah, Tell uh, us about the NASA Earth Exchange. So NASA Earth Exchange is a project that started about six years ago now, um, which tries to leverage the NASA supercomputing facilities mm. to enable um, the application of models over very large areas, um, over very large data sets. So uh. NASA has a lot of data that it collects with the satellite resources and works with other agencies like USGS with the Landsat series. Oh, and yeah. here at Ames, we have, and, and we've heard this on other podcasts about Ames supercomputing facility, mm-hmm. um, using that facility, we can stage the data sets that we need to model with We're not as limited in terms of the amount of data that we can handle at one time. And since NASA's remit is to look at the Earth as a system, to look at the Mm -hmm. whole globe, we like to, as much as possible, use all the data at once in a model. So we use multiple sensors and try to cover the Earth or cover large continents to be able to make inferences about what's going on regionally or hemispherically or globally. I see, yeah, and covering as many aspects as you can at mm-hmm. once. Mm-hmm. So you must collect a ton of data then. That- yes, um, we're, we're in the, the what they call the big data realm. Uh-huh. So we have terabytes and petabytes of data. I guess one statistic I heard was for Landsat, there are three trillion pixels for the globe. Oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, there are many billions of pixels covering the um, conterminous U.S. Okay, yeah, this is where numbers start stopping having meaning, right? Right, <laughs> right. so huge. Right. Right, that is big data. Okay, so you're using... And so, use, so the, the size of the data is one thing, and then applying models, if, if the models are at all computationally complex, um, it becomes quite a problem in terms of how do you get it done. Yeah. And we can get it done here with the supercomputing facility that NASA has at Ames, and Goddard also has a supercomputing facility that's used for this purpose. Mm-hmm. And then we're, we're also exploring the use of commercial clouds or public clouds. Several companies have staged NASA data that oh, okay. um, people can get access to and, and do modeling with. Cool. Yeah. I can imagine all of those might be necessary with that quantity of data and the complexity that it demands in the calculations, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Pretty impressive. Cool. So what kinds of studies are being done using those models and the crunching power of the supercomputers? Uh, well, with the NASA Earth Exchange, we've worked with a number of different collaborators on different topics. Uh, one is on climate projections into the future. How is the climate going to change? Is carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases mm-hmm increase in concentration in the atmosphere. There are uh, several dozen models that have been used to infer what's going to happen in the future, project what's going to happen in the future. But those models tend to work with very large pixels. 
Um, mm-hmm. And so the earth can be represented in a very small area when you actually, you know, make a picture of it. Uh-huh. But, so it's not a very fine resolution. Right, not a very fine mm-hmm. resolution, and therefore it's difficult to understand how things might affect our town or yeah. our, or the yeah. Bay Area or things like that because the pixels are so large. So one of the tasks that we've done is to um, use statistical models to sort of disaggregate those pixels or to downscale them so mm-hmm. that we can understand the projections on a finer scale. We've produced, in collaboration with the scientists at NOAA and elsewhere, we've produced several different data sets for use on what's happening with the climate in the future. Yeah, I see. How far out in the future does that look? Well, uh, this effort goes to 2100. Oh, wow. Okay. So the rest of the century. And and we also keep checking back on, given the projections, how is that matching what we're actually seeing as we we proceed. Yeah. And then uh, another project, uh, several of the projects do use the Landsat data because since that series of satellites have been up since 72, we're now getting a nice picture of how things have changed since the 1970s. Wow. And um, so we can track things like croplands and forests. And one of the forest projects is how have forests been harvested or burned by fire mm-hmm. or affected by insects or... Um, oh, yeah. Or have they have they remained the same during right. during that period of time? So another data set that has been generated using the NASA Earth Exchange is um, a forest disturbance data set, oh. and that's now of um, our general um, pattern with these projects is that the collaborators come on, we work with them on staging the data, the data they need to do the project, and help with the algorithms and running them running the models and then <clears throat> generating the output data sets and then those data sets get moved off to one of the NASA archive centers mm-hmm. and then it's available for anyone to download. So oh, right, of course, because all the data is, is open. Yes, isn't it? all yeah. the data is open. So That's a great resource. That data set is available. Yeah, very cool. And there are a number of others. Excellent. You just gave a couple of examples of destruction by forest fire, right, or mm-hmm. insects or something. Mm-hmm. Have you seen examples where, from the point of view of the satellites, you can see recovery yes. in ecosystems? Yes, that's one, one of the other things you can observe, the recovery of forests or um, the changing patterns of crops. Um, mm-hmm. Another project looked at how much land was fallowed or left idle during the drought in California. Um, that we had from 2012 to 2016. Mm -hmm. So farmers, both small farmers and industrial farmers, make decisions to leave areas idle because there's not enough water to grow anything that year. And so using Landsat, uh, another project mapped uh, how much land was fallowed in each year. Mm -hmm. That's something that can be done with the high-resolution imagery. So would you say that some of the studies being done with the NASA Earth Exchange can inform this strategy is working, we should do more of this after, I, I don't know, after a forest fire, if we behave this way, we might see more recovery or, you know, changing land use patterns? Yes, it can It can help. It, it's one source of information uh-huh. for that kind of um, policy making or decision making. 
so the, the data sets that are available in the archive centers can be used for people who make those kinds of decisions. And NASA actually has a whole applied sciences program mm. that funds people to do those kinds of studies. Oh, okay, excellent. Um, on how to use these results to inform decisions both by agencies or, or by other stakeholders. Yeah, that's really great because you need the basic research too understand the fundamentals, right? Mm -hmm. And the mm -hmm. next step is having other people apply it. Right? right, right. Excellent, cool. So did you say that these days you're working less on your own research and more on, is it coordinating? Yeah, partners? coordinating all of these projects. We have about 30 projects that we support mm -hmm. at various levels, and each one of those projects has one or two or three or more people working on the supercomputer. So there are a lot of things to keep track of, but also to look out for synergies or relationships mm. between projects um, where True. one group's efforts can be uh, utilized by another group. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, you want to maximize the sharing, right, of mm -hmm. information, data, knowledge. Yes. Yeah, very cool. Are you enjoying that? Yeah, I really like that part <laughs> very, very much. Cool. Very cool. Do you have any projects coming up that you're excited to be working on or any new paths? Well, the latest Landsat, Landsat 8, which was launched in 2013, there was a sort of a, um, a period of time when Landsat 7, which had been up for 25 years, mm. was still cranking them along and produ producing data, but it wasn't the highest quality data anymore. One of the parts of the Landsat sensor had failed yeah. uh, about four years into the mission, and oh. so we were kind of struggling along with those data. Okay. And so then in 2013, when the new sensor launched, it was actually a new architecture, and it provided great, great imagery that just knocks your socks off wow. when you see it. That must have been awesome and so now that it's been up for several years, we're being able to understand the time series of, of those data and how they, how we can use that well with the older data, mm -hmm. as well as the European Space Agency launched a pair of satellites, um, Sentinel-2 A and B, mm -hmm. recently. And those data are very similar to Landsat data, and so we're working with a group at Goddard to do a harmonized product that brings Landsat and Sentinel together oh, okay. so that we can get more looks at the surface um, per unit time. Instead of oh. every 16 days getting a Landsat chance, we now have Sentinel-2 coming in, oh, okay. um, and so we can get much more, more frequent looks, yeah, and yeah, that's yeah. helping with the time series oh, good. analyses. Yeah, can you remind me about Landsat? It's orbiting the Earth, and you just said every 16 days mm -hmm. it'll pass mm -hmm. over the same spot? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so if, if it gets a clear shot, which is not not uh, in many places, not every 16 days because of cloudiness, Yeah. Um, then you get to see each pixel, which is about 30 meters across the size of a tennis court. Mm -hmm. That's what a Landsat pixel is, and it, and it has... Uh, seven spectral bands, and so it looks in the blue, the green, the red, and the okay. near infrared. And Different colors also of light, there's yeah. a thermal band that looks at uh, the um, skin temperature of the of the surface. So the skin of the Earth, the skin of the Earth, <laughs> nice. right? Yeah, nice visual. So how long has the oldest Landsat satellite been up there? Um, 72 was the first 72. one that died after a few years, and then okay. there was Landsat 2 and 3 and 4 and 5, uh -huh. and then 6 failed. Okay. To, it, it launched and went into the Pacific Ocean. Oh. 
uh, and then seven. Seven was the workhorse that lasted over 25 years. Uh-huh. All right. And then Lancet eight, and Lancet nine is on uh, is on the schedule. So we're looking forward to that launch in in the early 2020s. Yeah, that's exciting. Mm-hmm. That should bring new things. Because I was wondering about 25 year old sensors. Mm-hmm. Are they mm-hmm. they're still providing? At, at the end of the life of that satellite, it would still be providing useful data? Yes, absolutely. And, and it's testament to people behind the scenes that really work hard to keep those the data quality up. Um, mm. they, they have to look at calibration. They have to adjust calibration. And they also do things on the spacecraft that are pretty impressive. You know, oh, yeah. they bring in... Um, they bring in the redundant electronics, um, oh. you know, they, and they, they do things with the, the burn to keep the orbit as, yeah. as close as possible to what it needs to be. And they do heroic things, but they don't get sung in the media no. very often because no. it's just very technical work. Uh-huh. But uh, it's thanks to people like them that we can that we can have a 25-year record from one yeah, satellite. It's one just satellite. really amazing. That's incredible. Yes, I think we do kind of just imagine it launches and it gets in orbit and then it's mm. all good and it just fires back its data. But yeah. there's somebody kind of driving it that whole yeah, time. Yeah, there are people that, that uh, dedicated armies of people that keep these things running. That's amazing. I keep hearing of things that last three times longer than they were intended to, and it's always nice to see. Yeah, it is. Yeah. The, the way it gets engineered in the first place is to make sure that the satellite and the sensors last during their design life. So mm-hmm. they, they get designed for a certain amount of time, but then it turns out that there are other constraints on it such that if it makes it past that time, it's likely going to continue working. Oh, yeah. Because um, space is a vacuum, so... Mm-hmm. <laughs> I see. I have a general question about Earth science from space. What actually happens to the data after it is taken by the satellite? Where does it send it? Who receives it? Good question. So there are, there are receiving stations all around the world for Earth-observing data. For the Landsat mission, for example, because it is for the United States, we make sure to cover all of the United States every chance we get. So we have pardon me, we have receiving stations around the United States to get those data um, while the satellite is passing overhead. Mm, okay. And then the, also the satellites have tend to have recorders on board so that they can send data after, even if the satellite isn't over the target. Oh, yeah. And then from the receiving stations, uh, they get sent to uh, data archives or processing centers to do the pre-processing. So Landsat is a USGS mission, so it gets sent to the USGS from which it gets distributed, um, the Eros Data Center. Oh, it's actually just called the Eros uh, Center at, uh, in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, is where mm-hmm. the Landsat data get initially stored. And then for the NASA Earth Exchange, we grab it from there. Okay, right, right. I realize we've been talking a lot about satellites from NASA European Space Agency, NOAA, USGS, Mm -hmm. these are all different agencies, Mm -hmm. the Europeans, but then also the U.S. federal agencies. So you really work together a lot, don't you? Yeah, and that's that's the other, another reason for the NASA Earth Exchange to exist is because from an individual researcher's point of view, they have to go to all these dis- different places to get the data, mm-hmm. and the data come in different formats, and oh, there are sometimes yeah. different transfer protocols and things like that. So it can take a while to assemble all the data you need for an analysis. So we stage it here on the supercomputing facility so that that saves time 
um, for the researchers that are working with these common data sets to, yeah. Yeah, that to just jump onto the computer and right. start working. That must have been a blessing for them when the Earth Exchange came on. Yeah. Some projects wouldn't have um, been able to be done at the time that they were done uh-huh. without it. I can imagine. Excellent. Well, this has been really interesting. It was great to learn more about your work. Thanks a lot, Abby. Thanks for coming in. And for those of you listening, if you have questions for Jennifer about the NASA Earth Exchange or observing the Earth with satellites, you can get in touch with us online. We are at NASA Ames, and we're using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. So send us your questions or comments, and we'll get them to Jennifer and get back to you. Thanks for joining us. 